Proverbs and chapter 4. We probably will not be able to conclude our look of the entire chapter here this morning. It's uh, a little bit too long, and there's, there's particularly the end of the chapter. Uh, there's the, the final paragraph I'd like to give a whole session to. But we are going to begin our examination of it here this morning, and we're labeling it the personal appeal for wisdom. Personal appeal for wisdom. Now, again, we've mentioned this before. It's a bit subjective how you subdivide these first nine chapters. We have chosen uh, to subdivide it into 12 lectures, and we're on our eighth lecture, which we're labeling the personal appeal for wisdom. Now, this follows what we studied last time in chapter three, which what we labeled, which is uh, we labeled that practical appeal for wisdom. And the idea is we've, the, these, really the, the purpose of these first nine chapters is the, the father, Solomon, speaking to the son, Rehoboam, attempting to convince him that it is indeed worthy to pursue wisdom, to become wise. So in chapter 3, he, we, he gave us the promises of wisdom, he praises wisdom, and then he gives the practical outworking of wisdom in just a quick snapshot you know, list of, of practical value, if you will, practical applications that if you are wise, this is how it will pragmatically help you in your life. Well, along those same lines, he's still appealing to his son to see the value of wisdom. And so uh, he's going to carry that on in this chapter, but it it takes on a much more personal appeal, uh, as we'll see. So this is how we're going to structure the chapter. The first 13 verses is a personal appeal to get wisdom, get wisdom. And then verses 14 to 27, the latter half of the chapter is a personal appeal to avoid evil. All right, so get wisdom and avoid evil. Get wisdom and avoid evil. So if you got your Bible, let's begin by reading the first 13 verses, then we'll pause there, take it chunk by chunk, and then uh, we'll see, you know, we'll get as far as we can. But chapter 4 verse 1 says, Hear, you children, the instruction of a father, attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake you not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve you. Love her, and she shall keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all your getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote you. She shall bring you to honor when you do embrace her. Verse 9. She shall give to your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to you. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life shall be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. When you go, your steps shall not be straightened, or you will not falter. When you run, you will not stumble. Verse 13, take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is your life. Pause there. Now, as we look at this beginning of the chapter, the first four verses in particular is Solomon's own personal experience. We've already dipped into this passage when we were in our introduction to the book of Proverbs because it is illuminating when we recognize Solomon's own personal experience. But he rehearses it here in verses 1 to 4 for the benefit of his own son. So he appeals to him, In verse 1 and 2, Hear, you children, the instruction of a father, attend to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine, forsake not my law. Those are similar commands that we've already seen several times in the first three chapters. 
But then he gives us his personal experience, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I was my father's son, which is, of course, a reference to King David. So he says, I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Now, there's lots that we can uh, see from this passage. For sake of time, we'll simply summarize some of the key ideas. First of all, I love to highlight the fact that there is the presence of at least three generations in this text. Do you see that? Solomon references his father, which is King David, who instructed him to get wisdom. Yet Solomon then passes this on to his son, Rehoboam. So we see the three generations of David, Solomon, and Rehoboam in these two verses. And Solomon is simply trying to keep the chain going, if you will. If we were to take the time, and for sake of time, we're not going to walk through these passages. We alluded to them back in our introduction, but I would encourage you to jot these down. And it is a fun meditation exercise to go compare Proverbs 4, verses 3 and 4 with at least these passages, and you can fill in, there's, there's others you could add to, to the list. But in 2 Kings chapter 2, first few verses, we see this is David passing off the scene, and he is prepping his son Solomon to be the next king. So as Solomon here is reminiscing on the instruction that he has received from his father David, we have several uh, places or instances where David did instruct Solomon that's recorded in the scripture. I'm sure there were other instances that are not recorded in the scripture, but nonetheless, 2 Kings chapter 2 is a good example of that. Uh, I, I love the one in 1 Chronicles 28. In fact, there are several chapters at the end of 1 Chronicles where David is attempting to equip Solomon because Solomon is going to be the one who, who builds the temple, right? David wanted to build the temple, but God said, nope, you're not the one. You're too bloody of a man, right? He says, your son will build the temple. So David, foot, you know, he footed the bill, right? He, he's the one who gathered all the riches together, and it was his conquests that he consolidated the wealth from those conquests, and he gives it to Solomon. He even plans uh, the temple. He, he, he lays out much of the, the you know, architectural plans, etc. The organization of the Levitical, uh, you know, the Levites and the priesthood, the musicians, all of that was David. And so he's kind of packaging that and giving it to Solomon. And so the, the last several chapters of 1 Chronicles would involve David's instruction to Solomon Another example, perhaps, would be Psalm 37. I, I just, I like to see, there's a number of psalms, and, and I just put in Psalm 37 as an example, but there's a number of psalms that, they're Davidic psalms, but you see phrases, or sometimes, you know, whole verses or paragraphs of what David said that show up later in Solomon's writings. It's really profound. David, for instance, Psalm 36 is an instruction for David to, you know, he's instructing his audience to fear the Lord. He really emphasizes that idea. Um, that becomes a big theme in the book of Proverbs. Psalm 37, again, similar. He's talking about the two paths, the way that, you know, the way of wisdom versus the way of folly. Solomon is going to mirror that same idea in, in Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs 8 and 9. So the point is, there you can see David's fingerprints all over the writings of Solomon. And it's really profound. And, and I encourage you, you know, we touched upon that when I taught through the Psalter. And we, you know, we took the Psalms one at a time. There was a number of them where, you know, we touched upon. There's, there's, uh, 
there's there's just a lot of examples of that. You know that that deserves its whole you know a, a whole lecture in of itself. But I just highlight that to you. It is it's a fun way to read the Psalms. Is is in you know in tandem in parallel with Proverbs or Ecclesiastes and see how much overlap there is. But according to Proverbs four, Solomon gets much of that wisdom from his father David. And if you recall, and I didn't put it in your notes in this slide, but we we put it in notes past. Uh, Psalm 72 is a prayer of David for Solomon, his son. He's praying that God would give to Solomon wisdom. And so when I'm convinced God answers that prayer, when God comes to Solomon and says, hey, what do you want? And Solomon is wise enough to ask for wisdom. That's, I think, an answer to the prayer of David in Psalm 72. So there's, there's so much overlap that we could spend, you know, a whole session or two just tracking those ideas down. But suffice it to say, as Solomon is trying to pass on wisdom to his son, Rehoboam, he, he talks about how his father passed it to him. And as one scholar points out, this is important to recognize. This, this transgenerational sort of teaching is very important. As one scholar puts it, he says, we're only one generation away from disaster. We must teach and train and raise our children in godliness. Deuteronomy 6, for instance, commands us to do that. The real test of parenting is not how well your kids do, but how well your kids pass on what you taught them to their grandkids. That's a profound concept. Is The point is, are you impacting generations? And you are, one way or the other, right? For good or for evil, you are making an impact. But are you making the right impact? Solomon here is recognizing the impact his father had upon him. Now, was David a perfect father? By no means. Read 1 Kings chapter 1, and it talks about Adonijah, the wicked king, you know, or attempt to take over. He was wanting to become king, and he was trying to steal the throne from Solomon. And it says explicitly in that chapter that he was a wicked man, Adonijah was, because his father, David, never disappointed him by saying no. In other, in other words, David was an overindulgent father. He simply let Adonijah do whatever Adonijah wanted to do, and it spoiled the kid, ruined him. And Adonijah grew up to become a rebel, literally, to try and rebel against the throne and seize the throne. And he ultimately dies a violent death at the hand of his brother because he's trying to steal the throne from Solomon yet again later. Read the story. It's not that great of a story. But the point is, you know, it's we see this concept of David was an imperfect father, but nonetheless, none of us have perfect fathers. Some of us have better fathers than others, but none of us have perfect fathers. So I think it's profound how Solomon is recognizing the value of his father. David was far from a perfect father, but nonetheless, Solomon is looking to him and saying, this is what I learned. This is what I learned. And so he's trying to turn and pass it on to his son Rehoboam. He says, listen to me like I listened to my father. And how many times that happens in life, right? We think we're, we got it all figured out. We're know-it-alls. And we, we think our parents are stupid until we become parents. And then all of a sudden we're like, whoa, my parents actually were really wise, right? They were really smart. And, and we start recognizing the value of that. And this is one of the things I'm trying to encourage because, I mean, I am blessed with having a, a great father and trying to let my father rub off on my son, you know what I'm saying? I just want to get them together because I'm trying to be a good father, but my dad's already been a good father. 
You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, I want him to rub off on my son. And I want my son to learn to see the generations. And there's, there's blessing in that. Uh, this, and the scripture is clear uh, of the blessing that a godly person has upon, remember, to the thousandth generation, he says. In the book of uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, both says that. So the point is, Solomon is pointing that out. And he's saying to his son, he says, you listen, retain my words, keep my commandments, and you will live. So then that idea is keep, you know, that he ends with, keep my commandments and you will live, that is what he's going to build off of in the next several verses. Verses 5 to 13 is then going to, to launch off into this personal advice. Solomon's personal advice, in sum, is to get wisdom. He says, get wisdom and retain understanding. Do not forsake them but love wisdom and exalt wisdom. And wisdom in turn will preserve you, keep you, promote you, bring you honor and reward you. In other words, if you do your due diligence in becoming wise, wisdom will treat you with honor. It will bring you honor. And so this is really his his thrust. Verse five again, he says, get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not and she shall preserve you. Love her, and she shall keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. The word principal there means it's actually connected to uh, that first word in the Bible. First word of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, Bereshit, in the beginning. Right? But the word is here is Rashit. It means the beginning, the principal thing, the thing that is to be top priority in your life is what that's getting at. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all you're getting, get understanding. Now, again, a couple of things to point out here. The mystic religions, both in Old Testament and New, even to this day, right? You get into Eastern religions, New Age uh, religions. These sort of mystic religions call you to look within yourself in order to find truth, peace, and harmony. But the Judeo-Christian worldview is entirely different. In Judeo-Christian thought, we are called to look outside of ourselves and acquire wisdom from a source that is ultimately beyond us. Christianity demands literacy. This is a fascinating thing. We could really get lost in this. But how much of the world has been benefited because of Christian, Christianity at large, Christian missions in particular, Many cultures did not even have a written form of their language until missionaries got there. But because of their burden to get the truth of the word of God into the hands of people, they invented an alphabet and they invented a written language for several cultures in order to help them become literate. Why? So that they could read the Bible. Yes? That's right. Then that's its own fun leg of history. What Simone just pointed out is, you know, even in the Western world, right, Western history, there were whole segments of Western history where the Bible was being suppressed, right? Uh, But particularly, we have the invention of the printing press, right? Then we have guys like Martin Luther. We have guys uh, stepping forward and translating the Bible, into the vernacular, the vulgar tongue, getting it into the hands of people to where they could read it on their own, that they could teach their kids how to read it, 
right? We've talked about it before, but the old, you know, when the Puritans came over here, the Puritans came across the sea, became pilgrims, right? They, they taught their children how to read by those New England primers. Remember that? It was Bible. It was, they taught them how to read by teaching them to read the Bible. And there's, there's so much of this that is important in our, you know, to our history, culture, society. But the reason that it is that way is because of this fundamental idea that we must learn from God and his revelation that there is a truth source outside of us. It's not inside of us. If you try to look within and invent your own truth, you become a cult leader. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) You go crazy. But when you look at God and say, hey, what is God saying? And you look at his word, now you become wise. And so that's what essentially Solomon is trying to teach Rehoboam. He says, you go after wisdom, pursue it, get it. In other words, to apply this basic idea is, is fascinating, is that we not only pursue wisdom, but we must continue to pursue wisdom. In other words, as uh, one preacher put it, he thought, I thought it was interesting, he says, if we don't regularly stay in our Bible, but rather we walk away from regular time in the scripture, then we get what he calls spiritual olfactory fatigue. Olfactory fatigue, if you're unaware, is when you stop smelling something that's bad because you're always around it. And so when we walk away from the scripture, we start stinking, morally uh, speaking, but we don't pick up on it. We often don't realize our own moral stench until we get back in the Bible. Everyone else notice, you know, notices our moral stench, right? I mean, you walk around and you stink, other people notice, right? Maybe you don't, but other people do. And it's the same thing, morally speaking, is we must immerse ourselves in the scripture because it, it sheds light upon us. It, it reveals what we ultimately must be. And if we are away from the scripture, we get that spiritual olfactory fatigue. We, just, we don't even realize how spiritually stinky we are. And so we just go on. And not, not even recognizing it. So he says, we need to get it, but he says, you need to hang on to it. He says, you need to uh, make sure that you never let it go. In fact, look at verse seven. I, I mentioned this earlier. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. I like the way the New Living Translation translates this verse. He says, getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do, right? Getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do. And whatever else you do, develop good judgment, right? And the idea is, is it's a play on words, Wisest, the getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do. That's what verse 7 is getting at. But he then promises you that if you get wisdom, verse 8 and 9, he says, you exalt her and she will exalt you or promote you. She will bring you to honor if you embrace her. You give, she will give to your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver unto you. Now the, the imagery in verses 8 and 9 We've actually already talked about at least one way you can take this imagery, but we're going to explore a second option just briefly. But this idea of exalt her and she will give you a crown of glory or a garland of grace as we translated it back in chapter one. We've looked at this idea, these images of the crown on her head or the garland. Uh, this, we've looked at that idea from the vantage point of a victory crown. Right? The idea is you're in a race or you're running a race, you're in a competition and you win and you're the victorious crown, the crown of victory. The New Testament will, will build uh, heavy on that 
analogy. Paul will use that. The Greek term for that is Stephanos, right? Where we get the English word name Stephen. It actually comes from that. Um, but it is referring to that victory crown, that reward for uh, pursuing a prize. But the other way you can take that, particularly in Hebrew culture, is that this idea of the garland or the crown on your head might be referencing a marriage feast where the bride, which in the book of Proverbs is likened to wisdom, right? Lady wisdom versus lady folly. Right? Those, that's, that's the two choices. But the, the bride, wisdom, bestows the garland on her groom. In other words, if you recall this, we've touched upon it in various contexts, particularly in Song of Solomon, if you recall. But the Bible is replete. That's a typo. It's supposed to say replete. But the Bible is replete with marriage symbolism. For instance, the, the glorious crown or the crown of glory mentioned in Song of Solomon or in Isaiah chapter 61. What would happen is there was, there, there was different forms of the symbolism, but in a Jewish wedding, there's one particular scene where when they're actually, you know, uh, under the chuppah, right, the marriage tent, and they are they, they making their vows of faithfulness, and then the wedding festival begins after that, then oftentimes they would dress up the, the husband and wife, the bride, the groom, as king and queen. And the idea is that they are establishing their own home, right? It's Genesis chapter 2. Leave father and mother, cleave to your spouse. The two become one flesh. That idea is, is what they're trying to picture with the symbolism of dressing up king, queen, and the point is you're establishing your own home. You're establishing a new civilization, if you will, a mini civilization in your own home. And so, but there was a significant moment where, and we still do this in our culture, right? Because we just do it in reverse. But in, in, in our culture, the, the man, the father of the bride, typically walks the bride down the aisle and gives the bride to the groom, right? There's, it's a symbolic moment in a traditional Christian wedding ceremony. What we're doing with that is we're trying to communicate Genesis chapter 2, right? You leave father and mother, cleave to your wife. And it's a very significant moment. Some uh, marriages or weddings will really pause on that and really make a big deal of that. Sometimes both sets of parents will come up and pray over the couple or something like that. But there's a very clear, decisive moment where the parents give their children to one another, right? We see the, the bride, the groom, they are now a new home and the parents take a back, back seat. That sort of symbolism is, was also present in a Jewish wedding, but it was often the, the mother of the groom, in fact, that would give the crown to the bride who would then crown her husband. And the picture is that, now, again, it's the same sort of imagery, they would just do it in, in reverse, um, we see this in Song of Solomon, for instance, Song of Solomon chapter 3, the wedding ceremony. It says the, the mother, that would be Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, crowns him with a crown during the wedding ceremony. And it's a picture of, again, she's now giving the, you know, the, uh, the most significant woman in Solomon's life now is his wife Shulamite, not his mother Bathsheba, right? That's the whole point of that symbolism. So the point is, that might be what 
the, the other side of the coin, if you will, the other way that this image of a crown or the garland could be invoking that sort of imagery. And the idea is that we are to be wedded to wisdom, that wisdom is to be, verse 7, the principal thing, the first priority. When you get married, right, all other relationships now take a back seat. That is the prioritized relationship is your marriage. That's what he's, he, may be, he may well be harnessing that imagery by, in verse uh, 7, 8, 9. He says, wisdom is the principal thing. Get a hold of it. Don't let her go. Exalt her. She'll promote you. She'll bring you honor when you uh, embrace her. So that, again, that's a pretty powerful idea. But then notice verses 10 to 13. It highlights what we've already seen so far, but wisdom is not a minor one-time decision, but rather it's a lifestyle. And what's so profound to me is that according to this passage, we can gain wisdom, but it's also possible to lose wisdom. Look at verse 10. It says, Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings. The years of your life will be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the right paths. When you go, your steps will not be straightened. When you run, you will not stumble. Take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is your life. In other words, as much as he is imploring us to gain wisdom, he is also telling us to maintain wisdom. Is it possible to be at one point in your life wise and then another point in your life foolish? Yeah, it's possible, right? We could give a lot of examples of that. How about Solomon himself, right? He's a good example of that. In other words, David is another good one, right? I mean, we can see it over and over and over again. And you can, again, in your own life and experience, I'm sure you could, you know, muster up a number of names that you could add to a list, right? But the point is, there are people who walk in the way of wisdom only to jump off the path and end up in the way of folly. And so he says it's not enough to merely pursue wisdom. That's where you start. You have to start there, is to pursue wisdom, to gain wisdom. He says you get wisdom, but then he says never let her go. He says, you hang on. You make sure that you maintain wisdom. And that's, again, going back to that idea of, of constantly staying faithful in your Bible so that we don't have that you know, olfactory fatigue, if you will, where we walk away from wisdom and don't even realize that we're slipping into, you know, again, the, the, the biblical term, to backslide. Right? Jeremiah uses that term. Uh, to, to go backwards in your spiritual progress. And it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do, but that we're all prone to it. So again, as Charles Bridges puts it in this passage, he says, the animated exhortation to hold on to instruction shows that it is a struggle to retain our principles. Feeble, indeed, is our hold when we are only interested in wisdom because of its novelty, end quote. In other words, we have a moment in our life, a season of our life where we see the importance of wisdom and it's a novelty, it's a new thing. And we're like, oh, that's great. But then we get worn out of it. We just say, eh, it becomes old hat. A walk with God becomes old hat. And as a result of that, we end up walking away from wisdom. And so that is absolutely true is, is we can not only gain, but we can also lose wisdom. So wisdom must be gained as well as maintained. 
So that's really his thrust in those first 13 verses. Again, going back to the structure of our chapter, the first 13 verses is a passionate, personal appeal to get wisdom. It's a father speaking to his son, talking about his, you know, the son's grandfather, right? And saying, hey, I learned from my father. Now you learn from your father. And he's, he's appealing to him on a very personal level to get wisdom. Well, now, verses 14 to 27, and we're probably not going to finish this section, but I'd like to set us up for next week, uh, if at all possible, is this latter half of the chapter is a personal appeal to avoid evil. Well, let's read verses 14 to 19, let's, and then we'll, we'll pause there, all right? 14 to 19, let's see if we can get at least that far. But verse 14 to 19 is this appeal to avoid evil, to avoid the path of the wicked and walk on the path of justice. All right, so he says, verse 14, enter not into the path of the wicked. So notice he just said back in verse 11, he says, I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I've led you in the right paths. Okay, so now he's saying, he, notice he plays on that word path or way. Verse 14, enter not into the path of the wicked. Go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it. Turn from it and pass away. Right? He just gives you four different ways to say the same thing. Uh, well, six if you include verse 14. So he's given a command after command after command, imperative after imperative. It's, you see the urgency in his tone? He says, enter not into the path of the wicked. Go not into the way of, of it. Avoid it. Pass by it. Turn from it and pass away. Why? Verse 16, for they sleep not except they have done mischief. Their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness. They drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto it the perfect day. The way of the wicked, on the other hand, verse 19, is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Pause there. Now, again, he's, he's using a similar analogy like we've already seen. This idea of two ways, right? The fork in the road, the path or the way of wisdom versus the path or the way of folly. So he's telling us to avoid the path of the wicked, but rather to walk in the path of justice or righteousness. He, he highlights especially in these first couple of verses of this, uh, you know, this injunction, how often fellowship with evil men loosens our hold on instruction. Their path and the path of instruction lead in opposite directions. He says explicitly, don't go with wicked or evil men, verse 14. I find this fascinating. Many of you perhaps have read it or at least heard of it. One of the first, in fact, it's, it's been heralded as the first autobiography, Christian autobiography ever. But you ever heard of St. Augustine's Confessions? In St. Augustine's Confessions, he makes a recollection of his own youthful experience of thievery. He says this, quote, by myself alone, I would not have done it. It was the company that I loved with whom I did it. They, when they said, come, let us go and do it. I love this last line. He says, I was ashamed not to be as shameless as they, end quote. In other words, peer pressure. He was pushed into it. His wicked company that he kept pushed him into thievery. And he confesses that in his autobiography known as the Confessions of Augustine. And it's still a classic to this day. But he's, he's highlighting this to his son. Go away from the path of the wicked. 
and, and again, I already pointed this out, but notice how repetitive it is, how emphatic it is. He says, avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, pass away. Right? He's saying, please run away, turn, run fast, run far, run hard away from these wicked men. Why? Well, he says, verse 16 and 17, for they, they uh, don't sleep or don't eat. Verse 16, they don't sleep. Verse 17, they don't eat unless they have done evil. In other words, to rephrase that in the words of the old reformers, the reformers' notes, you ever remember the, the first study Bible in history? It was the Geneva Bible. It was translated by you know, Calvin's Geneva, and they, uh, they translated the Bible, and it happened about 100 years before the King James translation in, in 1611, but it was translated, and they added notes with it. It was like commentary alongside of it. It's the first study Bible uh, believed to be you know, ever invented. But the reformers added this note in verse 17 saying, Mischief is meat and drink to these evil men. To do evil is more proper and natural than to sleep, eat, or drink. That's the point, is that when it says that they will not sleep unless they've done evil, or that they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence, is the idea is that just as natural as it is for us to eat and sleep, right? You ever seen those, those t-shirts like eat, sleep, do something, right? And repeat, right? I mean, it's like, I, we used to have one for our little little baby, right? And it was like one of those little onesies and it said, eat, sleep, poop, repeat, you know? <laughs> and it was like, yeah, I get it. That's their nature, right? That's about all that they do for the first several years of their life. But, uh, but that idea is we see, that's, that's what he's, he's, he's talking about as our basic nature to eat, to sleep. He says, the basic nature of a wicked or an evil man is to do evil or to do violence, and it's really interesting. We have other passages in the scripture we won't go to for sake of time uh, that talk about this. In fact, even a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of how God grants sleep to the godly. You remember that? And how we talked about how lack of sleep is many times in the scripture tied to a guilty conscience or in this case, it's not a guilty conscience like it was for, remember, Darius, right? He, I think that was the example we used last, a couple weeks ago, is Darius, King Darius throws Daniel in the lion's den and then he, he can't sleep. All night he's up. He's worried about it because he knew he did the wrong thing. And he's, you know, he's troubled by that. His guilty conscience, his anxiety for mourning, what's going to happen? And, but here is, is, is a pretty emphatic, you know, it's kind of along those same lines, the idea is you know semantically connected, but the idea here is that they don't sleep because they want to do evil. So it's not guilt for past evil, but it's desire, craving to do more evil in the future. Is that they're so wicked that they won't go to sleep until they have devised a wicked plan. And it's it's really uh, it, the Bible has this. It shows up several times in the Psalter, prophetic books talk about this as well. This, but it's one of the strongest biblical idioms for someone who is set in their ways. They are determined to do evil, and it, it says they, they can't even sleep unless they plan evil. But as he's describing the wickedness of these men, he contrasts it dramatically in verses eighteen and nineteen, where he talks about the path of the just or the way of the wicked, right? So he contrasts these two paths. So in, you know, he's bringing this to, you know, kind of a stark contrast in these two verses, but he's saying that there are two paths, two lives that both have two different destinations. He says you have the path of the just, and then you have the way of the wicked. 
Now, we'll see as we work our way through this, you know, it, it's, it's really profound because in what we're going to see, and, and I don't have time to get to this latter paragraph. I, I'm going to try and set us up for it. We'll get to verses 20 to 27 next time by talking through verses 18 and 19 for these last few minutes. But from really this, this paragraph, verse 18 and 19 introduces two ways. Then it's going to be followed by the paragraph, verse 20 to 27, which consists of a series of commands or advice that is given in light of the two paths that are mentioned in verse 18 and 19. And so we'll see, and the primary command given in that last paragraph is guard your heart, guard your heart. Uh, This to me is one of the first passages in the book of Proverbs that really grabbed a hold of me when I was a high schooler. And I want to give a whole session to that paragraph, so we'll do that next week. But let's set ourselves up for it. Let's look briefly at verses 18 and 19 again and, and comment on this for the last five minutes and then we've got to be done for today. But he says, The path of the just is as a shining light that shines more and more to the perfect day, but the way of the wicked is as darkness, and they know not at what they stumble. I love the words of uh, Demarest as he comments on verse 18. But he says this, the Old Testament depicts the life of the godly as a progressive moral and spiritual development, right? That idea of a shining light going brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. It's it's picturing the way of the righteous, the, the godly life is like this progressive moral and spiritual development. So Proverbs 4.18 likens the devout life to the path of the sun as the sun progresses from the dim glow of first light. Right? You see it early in the morning, that dim glow on the horizon. But it progresses from that dim glow of first light to the full brilliance of its midday zenith. So the believer advances in knowledge of God and in spiritual virtue. End quote. Charles Bridges puts it this way. He says, This is not the feeble light of a candle, nor the momentary blaze of a meteor, but it's the gradual illumination of heaven. And what a beautiful sight it is to see the Christian rise out of darkness, end quote. He's describing this walk of the believer. If you, again, and we already talked about this, that's the first 13 verses, we have to pursue wisdom, get wisdom, but we also have to keep wisdom and, and maintain it. You know, he says, don't forsake her, hang on to her, because you can become wise, but then you can become foolish. And I know a lot, a lot, a lot of people, and it, it breaks my heart. But I was just talking, I, I called my, my old uh, wrestling coach from college, and uh, we, we keep up. He's really the only dude from college I keep up with. Uh, there's a couple others, but he's, he's really the main one. And we were sitting there talking about all these guys that, that we went to school with and, you know, where they're at. You know, because, I mean, you fast forward 15 years and it's like, wow, you know, there's a lot of dudes that totally imploded their life. And they were walking with God at one time. They were wise, so it seemed, and yet they walked away from wisdom, and their life is in shambles, and it is so sad. And, you know, and it's, and you're sitting there, and you're talking about it, and you're like, man, because what happens? He says, the way of the wicked, verse 19, is like darkness. They don't know what what they stumble at. They just, they just get off the path of light, and at first it seems subtle, it seems insignificant, but then it gradually grows darker, And before long, they stumble. They hit something in their life that causes them to fall and stumble, but they didn't even see it coming because it's dark all around them. They walked voluntarily into the darkness, and then they ran into some danger that they couldn't see. He says, that's the path of the fool, but the path of the righteous, 
is the opposite. He says, you stay on the way of wisdom, and it's like the rising sun, that maybe there are things that you struggle with. Maybe there are things that you don't fully understand. There's the dim glow on the horizon, if you will. But if you stay on the path of wisdom, the sun keeps rising. The day gets brighter. The day gets warmer. Things start making sense. This is why it's so important that transgenerational teaching is so important. I had mentors, my, you know, my dad, others much older than me that would just tell me, Jeff, just trust me. You don't see it now but just trust me. You will see it later. And they talked about the right person to marry or right decisions to make, not getting in debt, things like that. Things that when at my young age, I was like, no, I got this, right? And they say, no, 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 listen to me. You don't see it now, but you will see it later. Then if you listen to them, stay on the path of justice, walk the path of light, you get a little bit later down in life, right? You add a decade or two, and then it's like you look back and you're like, whoa, they were right. Now I see it. I didn't see it then, but now I see it. It makes sense. I get it. And that's the path of the righteous, the path of the just. So we have to ask, again, is this full light the picture of my path? Is that, is that what your life is described like? Growing, advancing, Right? As, as again, one scholar put it, there's no command here for the son to stand still, as in Joshua 10. No stationary profession of faith. So the, so the stationary profession of faith is rebuked. It's a rising, advancing, not a declining son. And the idea is we, we are to continue to grow and advance in our, in our Christian life. And as we, we walk the path of wisdom, we experience that. There's blessing in that. And that's what he's saying. He's trying to teach his son, Rehoboam. Here's the trajectory of life. Are you going to be perfect? No, but here's the trajectory of life. Do not get on the path of, of folly. If you step off the path of, of wisdom, confess it, forsake it, and get back. And maintain a walk with God, because then and only then can you have the blessing that God has designed. Well, next time we'll see that these commands, as, as potent as they are, he's going to elaborate in the last paragraph. And, and I'd like to give a whole session to verses 20 to 27. It's a really rich section where he's, the primary command is keep your heart, guard your heart. So as I, just like I said before, you need to not only gain wisdom, but keep it and maintain it because our heart is a fickle thing and we can be loyal to God one day and disloyal the next. And so we must keep or guard our heart. And that's where he's really driving this whole lecture. You know, in chapter four, he's driving it to that final point. And so I'd like to give a whole lecture to that next time. All right? Well, let's close in prayer. We're out of time for today. We'll get ready for the next service. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for what you're teaching us here. Thank you for that image of the way of the just as a shining light, growing greater and greater to a perfect day, to where we can see clearly, where we can feel the warmth of the blessing of the sun. Lord, we can experience the blessed life that you have designed us to live if only we walk in the way of wisdom. We stay on the path of light. May we not go on the path of darkness. May we avoid it, pass by it, turn from it, and pass on. Lord, may we recognize that the path of darkness is nothing but danger, and we stumble not even knowing what we stumble at. 
That is a sad commentary on the life of so many. We pray that you would help spare us from that. Help us, Lord, to walk in the way of wisdom, to get wisdom, to keep wisdom. And as we'll see next week, to guard our hearts, to feed our hearts in the things of God. So we ask your blessing as we continue to study this blessed book, all for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.